City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Okay, we've got um, city limits, and we're on the um, we're on our energy energy day. We'll be talking energy issues today because we're going to do a catch up on the environment effect process that's taking place into the Crib Point liquefied national natural gas proposal by um, by AGL, and the hearings been, have been going on. They're still continuing, and Julia's going to bring us up to date with that. Julia Stockard from that group, and she's going to hang around also because in the second half we're going to talk to Colin Long, the Trades Hall Environment um, person, who is um, is is going to talk to us about hydrogen and the potential for hydrogen as a clean energy source and I know Julie is interested in that as well so we'll have a general discussion about those things. First things first though it's uh, Meg's birthday this week um, it was actually on Monday when we recorded this but uh, happy birthday Meg and uh, Meg Kimber is on the show with us today. Yeah thanks so much Kevin and all my birthday wishes Kevin. That's right. May they very well. And uh, and I'm um, Kevin Healy, of course. Karina is doing a wonderful job pressing the button. Zeb's missing today. She, um, I think that we had to change our time for recording, and uh, I think that's affected Zeb today. So hopefully we'll have, it, we'll have it back next week. The first thing I wanted to mention in relation to the American election, which um, you can get nothing else on the news these days, but I'll, we'll make this pretty quick. But I thought the most fascinating bit of the election was the election of uh, in North, Dara North Dakota, a Republican candidate was elected to the state legislature, a bloke called David Andal. And uh, I mean, we know Republicans, obviously, because they vote for Trump. They obviously vote for the best candidates. The only problem with voting for David Andal was that in early October, he actually died. <laughs> um, and uh, therefore, bit of a bit of a pie. I know the sort of people the Republicans elect. You probably find it hard to tell the difference, but nonetheless, he was dead. <laughs> and um, anyway, he's been elected, so um, I have to get him out of the grave. And wow, yeah, yeah. So he not only was voted for, he actually won the seat. He won. He he's been elected to the legislature. Trouble is, he's dead. Um, it's as simple wow. as that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, very. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. He might do a better job than some other people that could have been elected. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I guess they'll have to um, sort of, I, I think the Republicans in that situation might be able to appoint someone else or something, but who knows. I'm just going to pour a bit of tea. I forgot to do that. Here we go. Bit of tea. There we are. Um, and on that, just the last, the last thing about that, I, I don't like quoting Andrew Bolt because I think he enjoys being controversial. But nonetheless, we, he outdid himself last Thursday when the election was still in the still in the melting pot. He, he had how we laughed. Donald Trump could be re-elected. If true, it's the sweetest victory of all against the bullies and elites who most needed to be thrashed. Is that one? Wow. Um, yes, and he ends up saying the oppressed fled the new oppressors of the left and Trump may have won again. How we laugh. Well, he got that wrong, but nonetheless, it just shows where he's coming mm. from. And next to that, another column in which he starts saying Amazon tried this year to restrict sales of Hitler's Mein Kampf. Someone should inst instead send a copy to Labor leader Anthony Albanese. Um, and he goes on then about an array, it's a rave of colour, but the final thing is for Albanese to suggest this is Labor's fault, which is all about China, etc., to be fixed by sweet talk is profoundly wrong. Read Mein Camp. So there we are. I just thought today I couldn't resist wow. quoting those, those comments from Andrew Bolt. Wow. What has happened to our media? Yeah, that's right. That's but that's and he, this morning he's um he's <clears throat> I think normal this morning Wednesday Monday morning he's come out again. He said Trump has lost, but it's still a great victory for those forces or somebody thing. Raving on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's always a way to spin it. There is a, an interesting 
an interesting study or interesting finding in Peru. This is one that um, Karina and uh, Meg, you'll both, I'm sure, appreciate. Uh, it's long been held that in, in, in hunter-gatherer societies, the men were the hunters and the women were the gatherers. But they've found the 9,000-year-old remains of a young woman in the, in the Peruvian Andes alongside a well-stocked big-game hunting kit. The, the, the was led by a group, um, they studied burial sites, and it was led by a bloke called Randall Hayes at the University of California. And he concluded that between 30 to 50% of hunters in the Americas in this period may have been women. The paper published in the journal Science Advances contradicts the notion that in hunter-gatherer societies, the hunters were men and the gatherers women. For at least some portion of prehistory, that assumption is inaccurate, Dr. Hayes, adding the results, this is a bit you like, highlight the disparities in labor practice today in terms of gender pay gaps, titles, and rank. The results underscore there may be nothing natural about these disparities. There you are. I do like that. I think that's really interesting. Isn't it? Um, and it just, I, I think it, I think it seems like it, the idea that the, that you could just generalize about the whole of history and just say like men were like this and women were like this uh, is pretty basic, isn't it? But that's one of the problems of anthropology is that it's like a, a white, uh, it, like a university sort of level uh, practice. And so it works from a lot of assumptions that are actually very Western and very white assumptions. So uh, I think that's part of the why um, they look at something and, you know, see a particular way of being. And it's good to see that people are looking at things differently now. That's right. You'll be off shortly to celebrate yeah. your birthday carrying a spear, I suppose. <laughs> yes, I will. Ready to fire it at something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what kind of big game they have in Melbourne. I'm determined to find out. Well, <laughs> your birthday might be the big game of the week. That's it. Um, well, just, it's a special day, that's for sure. That's right. On energy issues and climate change, uh, we know the Antarctica is having problems and, and there's fairly huge icebergs breaking off because of the, the climate change process. But there's one yeah. that they're afraid is heading toward a, a remote island in the South Atlantic, which is home to thousands of penguins and seals. And they say yeah. shaped like a closed hand with a pointing finger, the iceberg is 160 kilometers long and 48 kilometers wide, but only 200 meters deep. And scientists feel if, fear it could run aground on the island, blocking off crucial feeding routes for the local marine wildlife. So that's just another impact of climate change if indeed that happens. Oh, but, uh, that's very sad. It is, it is, but it's... Um, it's going to keep happening until something happens, so to speak. And in fact, of course, mm -hmm. after Biden's victory, um, um, our, our own prime minister says he won't change his policies on climate, and uh, we're going to, you know, we'll no. get along well with Biden. But we, our policies are our policies, so that doesn't augur well for the changes we need. And speaking no. speaking of changes, we've now got a new a new. Um, mining company in Australia, a new resource company called Brabus Mining and Resources. You know Brabus Mining and Resources? B-R-A-V-U-S. I don't know them. It, uh, yes. oh, no, well, okay. anyway. No, I haven't heard of them. No, well, it's actually, it, up, till, up till now it had a different name. It was called Adani. Oh, do you know what? That name does ring a bell. That's right. That name does ring a bell. Well, Adani yeah. is changing its yeah. name to Brabus, but it says it's nothing to do with the fact that the name is toxic, but it's just it was time for a change. The bloke, they said it's important to signify we're moving into the operational phase. It's also to give our mining business our own identity. Well, I thought Adani very much gave it its own identity, but there you are. Oh, God. Uh, and and of course, look, there was an election in Queensland that re-elected a Labor government that have, you know, paved the way for Adani's mind to. It has indeed. There, it has so indeed, and that's a bit of yeah. A, a bit sad though, because they say that well, the name Bravus means well, it's brave Latin for brave, and they say Latin for courageous. They say, but 
uh, the article in the Financial Review telling us about the name change said that other definitions on the internet describe it as meaning cutthroat or a villain. Not great for a company that is being targeted by environmentalists for its behaviour both in Australia and India. So uh, mm. poor old Adani, anyway, they're, they're no longer than our Bravas and uh, I suppose it'll take a while for Bravas to become toxic as a name. But Probably not too long, to be honest, though. No, yeah. but it, it's building up on them because ANZ has joined now the banks to saying they won't mm. give any more um, money to... Um, to thermal coal, and um, mm. and Adani, of course, is one of those. But also at the same time, uh, uh, Lloyd's of London, the the big um, the big insurer, uh, their syndicate Apollo says it will no longer insure the Carmichael mine, and really? it's one of apparently. Um, a number of insurers have, or in fact, up to now, 27 insurers have to, have refused to insure it. And the Apollo no. people say, um, they say, we can confirm that we participate in one construction liability policy in respect of Adani. Um, this particular policy terminates in September 2021, after which we will no longer provide any insurance cover for this project. We have recently declined to participate in an additional policy relating to the port and rail extension and have agreed that we will not participate in any further insurance policies for risks associated with this project. So Adani's copying wow. it in all directions, yeah. Um, yeah. Interestingly enough, though, Keith Pitt, the Federal Resources Minister, who's gung-ho about fossils, and also the uh, deputy leader of the of the National Party, the, um, that mm. bloke, um, what's his name, Proud, Proudfoot, Proud name, Proud, whatever his name is, um, they, mm. they both came out and attacked ANZ, and, and uh, Pitt said there was an extraordinary decision not to back for thermal coal, and they were playing the eco-warrior. Um, according to him, and the other blokes threatened that any government concessions that go to the banks might be they might re reconsider them in relation to that bank because it won't it, it won't uh, fund thermal mm. projects. So there we are. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's that's obviously the free market just working exactly as it should. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. Leave yeah. the free market. Well, the free market works well as long as the government gives it enough money. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And it inter intervenes in things that are non-profitable to try to make them profitable. Yeah. In, for instance, um, Alan Joyce, of course, our old mate from Qantas, he's come out and he said, mm. well, look, you know, we, we who earn millions a year decided not to increase our, um, our pay this year because of the COVID-19. But unfortunately, mm. we... we we couldn't do it for employees on enterprise agreements. We have to go through lengthy negotiations with unions and then a vote to change provisions mm. that don't work in a post-COVID world. And he's really saying that workers have to take pay cuts in the post-COVID world and it should last for at least three years. The wage cuts should go for at least three years. So it's three years when it's wage cuts for workers, but tomorrow, if possible, mm. when he wants to get planes back into the air. So it's all very interesting that... Uh, and he's also attacked red yeah. tape. He says that um, the the authorities um, have been ordered to monitor the prices, costs and profits of Australia's domestic airline industry. And he said more red tape is the last thing any business needs now. I mean, that sort of inquiry might unearth a few things that Alan wouldn't want unearthed, yeah. I would have thought. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Kevin, our first guest is with us. Julia's so, with us. Good. Um, Hi, Julia. Well, look, um, welcome to the show. Look, we'll take a very quick break then and we'll come back and we'll talk to Julia Stockard and get an update on what's happening with the environment process in the uh, Crib Point LNG proposal. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, 
give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe everyone. change we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Back on City Limits, we've got Julia Stockett with us, who's, um, as I was we said, one of the campaigners against the proposal by AGL to put a floating natural gas plant, liquefied natural gas plant, importing the, the product at Crib Point on, on Western Port Bay. And Julia, we've talked to you before about this, but how's the process going so far in the EES hearings? Hi, Karen. It's been uh, it's been interesting, actually. The uh, the hearing's been going for about four weeks now. Uh, so this is the EES hearing, the Environmental Effects Statement hearing, which is um, overseen by a panel of uh, people who are going to advise the minister who has the final decision on the project. And we've so far been hearing only from the proponent, AGL, and their witnesses with all the reasons they think it should go ahead and with a little bit of cross-examination from the joint environmental groups from Mornington Peninsula Shire Council and Bass Close Shire Council, Cardinia Council, who are all opposed to the project. That's the three main local council and the EPA have also done some cross-examination too. Wow, so four weeks and... Is that every day and you've only been hearing from AGL so far? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's four days a week, so 10 till 4. It's been very relentless. Wow. Yeah. I mean, normally these uh, hearings are like a sort of VCAT hearing, more like a VCAT hearing than a court case, but it's a bit of a like a court process. Uh, but because of COVID, it's all being held online as a sort of experimental, remotely, uh, con- you know, offered process only, which the community had a lot of concerns about that just because uh, there's been there's been such universal opposition to the project locally and across the state. Um, but a lot of people who submitted, made submissions during the their, uh, public opportunity to do that during the EES, uh, a lot of people, you know, don't have reliable internet connectivity or they are older and they don't use uh, aren't familiar with the technology so it really has um, been a difficult process for many people to to engage in and on top of that you've had the panel itself and the people behind the scenes there ironing out all the kinks of offering uh running it as a remote process which has been difficult as for example the witness that are witnesses. I mean, AGL has been putting their EES. One, they were ordered to run an environmental effects statement into the project because it was judged by the minister to have so many potential environmental impacts. So this is the highest level of environmental review in the state. And that was ordered over two years ago, nearly three years ago now. Uh, And since then, they've been putting together all their reports and they've uh, employed witnesses and specialists and scientists, their scientists to say, you know, um, the reasons they think it will be all fine. But our witnesses on visual impacts, on lighting, on um, visual amenity, uh, social impacts, on the birds, the wildlife, all of our witnesses, or none of them, can visit the site because of COVID. So they are expected to give evidence to the panel on a site that they've never had the benefit of seeing. So that has been a real disadvantage to the side of the people who are opposed to it. Yeah, It was interesting, uh, Julia, that about the first day of the hearing, uh, we quoted on this program, the, the chairperson of the panel 
came out and virtually word for word talked about the sort of complaints you've been making about the environmental dangers inherent in the whole proposal. And we, we thought that was quite an encouraging start, that she was quite aware of all the environmental dangers involved. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think before the hearing starts, uh, during um, August, there was a period of public comment when over 6,000, well over 6,000 people made submissions against the project for all the reasons that they um, identified, you know, that were important to them. And I think it was the responsibility of the panel to, or the whole team of them, to read those uh, submissions from the public and identify what the major issues were. So I think that list, that Madam Chairwoman, who's Cathy Mitchell, the uh, chair chair of the Inquiry Council, she uh, listed those um, concerns that um, I think she she sort of uh, um, said that they were recurring themes in the submissions that the public had made. So they were things like impacts on marine and estuarine ecology and biodiversity, impact on the Ramsar wetlands, the legality of depositing wastewater into Western Port Bay because there is a, a state environmental protection policy which is called SEP, that's um, EPA policy, which says that no wastewater from industry can be released into areas of high conservation value and Western Port Bay is an area of um, international significance to the survival of migratory birds especially, but it's also, you know, it's an incredibly rich and diverse marine ecosystem. So it's got an uh, international Ramsar accreditation, which is for the protection of uh, migratory birds. So um, yeah, there was a number of impacts because uh, as we said last time when we were uh, discussing the project, AGL wants to import gas into Western Port Bay from around the world. And they want to uh, bring it in, in tankers, which would really uh, increase the number of ships coming into Western Port Bay by about 40%. And uh, then the gas would need to go through this very industrial process of regasification, which, which they will need to uh, put odorant and nitrogen and there's all these, you know, hazardous processes on board the ship. Then it would be transferred into a receiving station and pumped into a pipeline that they want to build to take the gas 60 kilometres across uh, Victoria to Pakenham to bring it to the um, commercial network. And part of that process, yeah, because the gas comes in frozen at minus 160 degrees uh, Celsius, they use or they want to use the seawater, uh, the temperature of the seawater to heat up the frozen gas and that circulates a lot of seawater through the beach ship, which would be permanently moored at our beach if they get this approved. And the process of having that seawater in the pipes can cause what they call biofouling, which is, I suppose, um, you know, build-up of crustaceans, or not crustaceans, but, you know, like um, shellfish and things in the pipes. So to get rid of that, they would introduce chlorine and the chlorine would be flushed through and dumped out into the ocean. So the impacts of that have been one of the one of the main witnesses we've heard from has been um, from a couple of AGL's experts in inverted commas who are basically dismissing any concerns, saying that they think that it will have no impact on marine life and all the wildlife in the area that feeds on the marine life. And we don't agree with that. And we have witnesses that will really that will question their assertion that they can mitigate and and sort of ensure that no harm will come to Western Port Bay because mm. we don't really think that's possible if they will go ahead with this plan. Seems like an incredible claim to say. I mean, you don't need to be a scientist to see that doing something like that is going to have some kind of an effect. And then um, so often you see companies do these kind of environmental effects statements and say, oh, no, we don't think I'll have any issue. And then yeah. if it does go ahead, of course, it has a major issue. And then they go, oh, whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really concerning. And I think it seems like there's, there's like this, there's this little club of 
experts which routinely do these these sort of EESs and they're known for um, approving whatever process or impact the proposal has. So they're sort of paid mouthpieces to mm. facilitate industry, which is kind of a bit of a concern. Yeah. But I mean, the, the marine impacts are just are just one of several impacts. I mean, the opening day of the of the hearing, we heard from the Bunurong Land Council. The Bunurong are the traditional owners of the lands and waters around Western Port Bay, and they feel that their interests as traditional owners have not been adequately addressed. Their representatives said um, that they, you know, we've got to get this right, and he. he brought up the example, the recent example of Jukum Gorge in Western Australia where Rio Tinto did that disastrous destruction of a culturally significant site that has been condemned worldwide. And this is just another example of the interests of Indigenous traditional owners not being respected, not being acknowledged and not being uh, addressed. So there's such a long history of, of that. and. We know better now. We can't continue going on like that. And just last week, the the um, the Japurang Embassy was was infiltrated, and the uh, directions tree was desecrated and chopped down in Western Victoria to make way for a highway. And I mean, it's just unthinkable that these things could still be happening when these processes and every single website of government department you go to, they say we acknowledge the traditional owners, and they're giving lip service to these very important ideals. But when it comes to their actions, they are not following through, and I find that just the hypocrisy of that is just so disturbing. Well said. Yeah, it's pretty hard to conceive of the fact that they say they want to have a treaty with the Indigenous people in this state at the same time as they do what they did at Jabarung and uh, and they're doing all over the place to Indigenous, uh, indigenous sites, yeah. There was also a um, an item that uh, at the AGL general meeting, annual general meeting, quite a large number apparently of shareholders came out and attacked the company and said it should back off this proposal because of the environmental damage and the level of opposition to it in the local community. Uh, I know you were involved in that. Could you tell us something about that? Yeah, yeah. The um, Well, you're seeing this, I think, more and more at... Um you know, big corporations, annual general meetings that um, shareholders are putting a lot more pressure on these big corporations, particularly fossil fuels corporations, to get their act together and really address the climate emergency and to deal more responsibly with their with their customers and with their with the, the way they do business. And um, ABL is certainly no exception. Um, the last few years, we've been able to protest or do an action to demonstrate at the H annual general meeting before the shareholders and in front of the board members to show them that there is such strong community opposition. Because AGL says that community is at the heart of all they do, that social licence is one of their most you know, important foundation principles and that they respect community and that, you know, we want to be respected and accepted as a neighbour, work amongst you and all of these statements. But they just don't listen. They have not been listening to the community. And even, you know, choosing the site without consulting people, it's just not, it's not what their own policies advise. So there's a group called Market Forces who really effectively have been asking the cooperation of shareholders to are not attending the AGM to attend as proxy shareholders. And each year, people who are, are wanting to, to really make this point in front of the board have been able to attend with these proxy shareholder certificates. And traditionally, you would have the microphone and you would have the floor, you would hear from the floor, they open up the, the uh, meeting to shareholders' questions. And um, this year, of course, it was all on online a Zoom sort of session, and we had to submit our questions beforehand. And if they wanted to answer them, they did. And if they didn't want to, there were several that went unanswered, although we were expecting them to cut us off a lot more than they did. So they did actually ask our questions, but they just kept batting them back with the same answer. 
the AGL crib point proposal is subject to an EES panel hearing right now, so we'll allow that process to take to take its effect, and um, and we won't be answering those questions. And um, it, we would, I eventually I got so tired of this response because it was really just um, that they were using this to not have to deal with the questions from the community, which was really, which wasn't wasn't good. And I think there were questions asked that were well well beyond the ability of the of the panel hearing to determine, like questions to the board, like how will um, the board members, you know, offset the the carbon emissions that would come from all that extra gas that they want to import into Victoria for the next 20 years, because that's the projected lifespan of this proposal. And things like that, that's not for the panel to determine, that's for the board to tell its shareholders how it will deal with that, how it will, you know, how they reconcile that with their own uh, greenhouse gas emissions policies and so forth. But no, they weren't having a bar of it. They, use, they really used the, um, the panel hearing to sort of hide behind. And so, yeah, it was a bit frustrating, but still a lot of good questions were asked and not just from people from our community, but actually from a lot of, you know, legit shareholders who, not that we weren't legit, but, you know, we were shareholders. And there were a lot of, you know, there's a lot of expectation from shareholders on the board of big companies to do better, to look at the um, carbon emissions reductions targets and to really start, you know, making the modifications and, and the divestments and, and investing in renewable, sustainable energy alternatives because that's one of the big concerns about this project. Not only will it, it would it introduce a lot of gas that would otherwise not be burnt in Victoria for the next 20 years. And we know now that gas is just as dangerous and dirty as coal um, because it's methane content, which is, you know, estimated to be up to 80 times more, um, you know, like a destructive greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Yeah, so it, it was good to hear that, that, that there's a lot of pressure coming onto, onto companies about, about those things. Just to finish up on that, the arguments from against the proposal are starting this week at the hearing, are they not? That's right. So today, starting at 2pm, we'll be hearing from Mornington Peninsula Shire Council and they have a fantastic barrister called Rupert Mordor, who's who has been a real star actually so far. He's got a, a really convincing style. I think he's great. Anyway... He will be on starting at 2 o'clock today. That's Monday because we're going to air on Wednesday, but, but Monday that started this week, yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay, yes. Yeah. So all this week and next week we'll be hearing from the councils and from their um, witnesses. So the council will be having uh, their own expert witnesses on, you know, uh, impacts to the tourist local tourist economy because it would certainly detract from that if it went ahead um, if on traffic you know, there was a lot of uh, things that we discovered in the EES when it was released that um, despite two to three years of, of community consultation sessions with AGL, they never told us that 900 trucks a year would be coming past on our roads to get to the beach where they would, where they're proposing to build this receiving station. They never told us that they actually want to close public access to our beach because of the noise levels there would be so high from the pumping station that they would be above EPA safe levels and they are actually seeking a planning amendment to allow them to rezone public recreational land into port use. Land. Um, so a lot of these things didn't come out. They never told us these things uh, until the, the EES, uh, you know, came through. But but um, I, the council will be dealing with a lot of those, um, those uh, you know, poli uh, sort of planning issues. And, uh, and then we'll be hearing from the uh, joint environmental groups, which is, say, Western Port, um, which that's the group that I'm a member of, um, Environment Victoria, who are our campaign partners throughout this, and Victoria National Parks Association, who will be particularly looking at the marine impacts and we are represented by Environmental Justice Australia. So 
will be starting on, um, I think it's the 24th of November, maybe the 27th of November. And anyway, all of these dates and uh, summaries of the hearings will, uh, will be available on the Save Western Port website, which is savewesternport.org. And if you visit that site, you'll be able to get the link to watch the hearings. You can read the, um, you know, summaries of the day's, you know, goings on. And also, you know, there's a lot of table documents and other people's submissions and things that you can read. Then we'll be hearing from the public because um, over 6,000 people, you know, made submissions and several hundreds of them uh, will be will be speaking to the panel about why they love Westernport, why they are going to implore the, the panel not to approve this very destructive... All right, look, let's take a break on City Limits then and we'll um, come back with more of this and uh, and more of City Limits after a short break. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au Okay, back on City Limits and we've now got Colin Long from Trades Hall. He's the transition organiser. He's there. He works on environmental issues. And uh, Colin, we got you on today to talk about hydrogen in particular, but while we're on natural gas, um, uh, for, for either of you, at the moment, surely, even from the company's point of view within capitalism, the economics of the whole natural gas process at the moment would indicate that they're taking major risks going ahead with these sort of proposals, wouldn't it? I would have thought so. There's natural gas expansion is a dead end in Australia as it is anywhere else. I would have thought in the world it's not necessary to, as a transition fuel for, to move to renewable energy or anything like that. And, and as you say, the economics of it, even on a global scale, are pretty dodgy at the moment. Um, there's quite a substantial potential for stranded assets in natural gas, just as there is for coal. So to be expanding it and especially uh, devastating local environments in the process hardly makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that came up at the hearing. The um, the proponents' legal team was saying, you know, if you want to attack this project, um, you can't attack it on environmental grounds because it's a very light touch project. After the uh, life of the project, the FSIU, which is the Floating Storage Regasification Unit, can just sail away. You know, it's just crazy. They're building a 60-kilometre pipeline gas pipeline, that's not going anywhere. <laughs> that's going to be a stranded asset for 
you know, forever. It, it's crazy. And, and the sort of um, land and the wetlands and things that would be destroyed by that construction is just crazy. Yeah. Can I just ask you quickly, um, you said that gas is not needed for transition, and I agree with you, but how do you see, well, the argument is that we need gas or some other fuel for peaking power, they say to firm up peaking power in peak times. What do you think is the solution there? Well, I think the solution is partly about what I was asked to talk about today, which is hydrogen. hydrogen yeah. Let's get on to that. Because um, yeah. <laughs> hydrogen, of course, is coming increasingly in the news. Uh, even the government's last proposal has it included, along with keeping coal going, but at least it mentions hydrogen as well. But they talk about green hydrogen, Colin, and, and various other forms. Can you just explain what some of these terms are about? Yes, well, green hydrogen is hydrogen made from using renewable energy through the process of electrolysis. So you use electricity generated by renewable power to split the H2O molecule, water molecule, into hydrogen and, uh, and oxygen. And people are doing that, have been doing it for a long time. It's a bit more expensive than other processes at the moment, but there's a hope that the, and the likelihood that cost will come down substantially. Uh, and then there's other forms of making hydrogen which occur at the moment. One is using natural gas and one is coal to, to hydrogen as well, but both of those... Uh, release, take a lot of CO2 in the process. So unless you use carbon capture and storage, which doesn't work anywhere in the world at this stage, neither of those techniques are environmentally friendly. So really only uh, the use of renewable energy and electrolysis is the way to make green hydrogen. I know you've got, you're pretty optimistic about the future of hydrogen, but what, what can it be used for? Can it be used for almost anything in terms of energy? It's pretty amazing stuff, but we didn't. We shouldn't get too carried away by it. So there are people saying, oh, it'll be fantastic to use in fuel cells in vehicles. I don't think it makes sense in passenger, small, small, in cars. I just don't think it makes sense in cars. It's, it's not as efficient as uh, battery electric vehicles. So I think battery electric vehicles will win that argument in relation to passenger cars. Maybe in larger vehicles, heavy vehicles, potentially, but again, not necessarily. Trains, possibly, but again, you can, if you can electrify, that's probably more efficient. Probably in shipping, there's a real opportunity, and in aircraft. Probably, in terms of transport, probably aircraft will be hydrogen. It will be very useful in firming the electricity grid, so providing peaker plants. So you just... When you have a whole lot of excess renewable in the, in the grid, you know, during the day, which is increasingly the case even in, in Victoria and Australia, where you've got renewable generators, solar plants and so on, being shut down because they're providing too much electricity in the grid. If you use that to uh, create green hydrogen during those periods, then store the green hydrogen and burn it in peaker plants when, you, when you've got a demand issue, that will be, uh, I think, probably the, one of the most important uses of hydrogen. And when you burn it, you the product that is produced is water. So it's incredibly environmentally friendly. I think uh, hydrogen is also uh, will be very important in the manufacture of green steel. So it's, it's already been done in Germany at a small scale, but they'll be able to ramp it up, I think, in the next 10 years or so where you can use hydrogen to replace all both kinds of coal that you need for steel. So you need thermal coal for, for the heat and you need metallurgical coal, which provides carbon content into steel. And you can people have been able to use hydrogen to replace both sorts of coal in steel manufacture to produce uh, green steel. If that can be done at scale and a reasonable cost, that will be a massive game changer for industry and the planet and possibly for Australia because uh, we have so much renewable energy capacity potential here that we could be a major producer of green steel. So is the issue with using renewables 
as the only way of generating energy. The issue that there are moments when you have lots of sunlight and then there's no sunlight for a while. Is that is that why hydrogen is necessary to store energy? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, effectively. Um, if you want to run a 100% renewable energy electricity grid, it's relatively easy to do up to about 80% penetration of renewables into the system. That final 20% is probably going to be tricky. But, and it's just that, if when yeah when it's not sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing um, and of course sun doesn't shine at night so you do need to store electricity somewhere obviously batteries are going to be a major source of grid firming capacity as they call it and um, victoria's just announced a 300 megawatt battery which is pretty big and which will provide a bit and also pumped hydro is another source of grid stability and firming but um, expanding hydro hydro capacity is not without its problems especially in you know developing world where lots of damage has been done by building more and more dams but where they exist and they they'll, they'll be useful but also there's a lot of work being done on pumped hydro in abandoned mines and Australia is full of those um, so there's a real you just need somewhere where there's a big fall a big drop in height and some of the the old Mines in Australia, especially the large-scale ones up in Queensland, are kilometres deep. So you mean like an open-cut coal mine sort of thing? No, not necessarily. No, deep shaft. Oh, okay. Yep. Underground mines where you you just have, and some of them are literally kilometres deep. So with that big fall, you can do a lot of pumped hydro storage. So then the water falling would turn a turbine, and then you use the power to pump it back up and right where you go again, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Can I just ask you about hydrogen production? You know, um, green hydrogen is produced using water. In a country like Australia that is short of water, would that ever be an issue? You need to do it in the sensible locations, I think, where you don't have necessarily a water shortage, but also there's the potential of desalination. So you can take um, salt, salt water, desalinate it, and then use it. So that actually makes Victoria quite a good, it might actually make our desalination plant useful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, some of the elements of a very good hydrogen industry are starting to come together, in my view, in Victoria. So there's the desal plant down in Gippsland and the proposal for one of the world's largest offshore wind farms off Gippsland as well, which could provide the electricity that and the water, and then it's all integrated into the electricity grid because it's down and close to the Latrobe Valley. So the potential there for major hydrogen industry is very substantial, I would say. So why is, why is the government investing hundreds of millions of dollars in the carbon net project to drill for uh, looking for ways to do carbon capture when billions of dollars has been spent on looking at carbon sequestration and it's never been developed or brought to a commercial stage what why is is that just an example of the control of fossil fuels companies or what is it i suspect it's the last gasp of an industry that doesn't want to change or doesn't want to be phased out and there's no other alternative for the coal burning industry in whatever than carbon capture the fact that it hasn't i mean it is technically feasible well we think it's largely technically feasible but it's extremely expensive and in the long term may still have problems associated with it and usually doesn't capture all the carbon anyway i just think especially in victoria there's there is 500 years worth of brown coal left and people find it very hard to give up on that. <laughs> just leave it in the ground, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. it's actually quite useful as fertiliser too because it's very, <laughs> it's actually not too far off um, being just mud. Yeah. Brown coal. Colin, we never thought that one day we might be praising the foresight of John Brumby and Steve Brax then with the desal plant. Um, but uh, another byproduct of the um, hydrogen process is ammonia, is it not? And some people are saying that too could be used as a as a as a resource. So comment on that. Uh, the best hydrogen is very uh, hard to transport, uh, very volatile, very hard, and you have to. Store it at incredibly low temperatures, and it can escape through the molecule is very small, so it can escape through steel and so on very easily. So, you, 
uh, if it's converting the ammonia, it's a much easier way to transport it. The only problem is you have to a process, you use energy to convert into ammonia and then you use energy to convert it back from ammonia into usable hydrogen at the other end. So, but it is certainly an uh, easier way to transport them. It is used in that way today, but if you can burn hydrogen without converting it, that would be more efficient. And as I said, it only produces water in, in the process of doing it. Is there a way to retrofit pipeline, gas pipelines so that they can be used to transport or store hydrogen? So the, in South Australia at the moment, they're carrying out an experiment of injection of 10% hydrogen to so-called natural gas yep. for domestic use. Uh, once you can probably get the 20% hydrogen into get the current gas network without having to upgrade, but after that, you probably need to upgrade the whole system and replace all the pipe and so on because the uh, leakage of hydrogen is much more of an it's much more likely than natural gas in or fossil gas in in the existing networks. So it'd be very expensive to upgrade uh, massively, but 10 to 20% of hydrogen into the gas network would reduce the need, probably reduce the need for any expansion of natural gas or fossil gas now anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that the South Australian budget, which was delivered yesterday, Tuesday, as we go to air on Wednesday, um, they're allocating $240 million to the demonst demonstrator phase of a major uh, hydrogen plant in South Australia, which is interesting. They're, they're seeing it as a as a major um, a major earner, in fact, for the state as they see it. There's a number of states that are putting substantial money into green hydrogen, Western Australia, Queensland and South Australia, uh, and a very large scale, I think, in Queensland and Western Australia, but a smaller cost than is being put into the hydrogen project in the Latrobe Valley, which is cold hydrogen. But smaller amounts of money, but larger amounts of hydrogen to be produced and it will be green. That project has got an incredible amount of government, state and federal investment. It's a Japanese project. And yeah. it, AGL, again, are donating all the coal for the pilot stage of that project. So one reason that, that it's concerning down this way is because they want to ship that hydrogen out of Western Port Bay for Japan. But um, it just seems to be a, a crazy sort of prospect to burn coal in Victoria so that clean hydrogen can go to Japan. We'd have the emissions and they would get the benefit of the clean fuel. I don't see what there is in it for Victoria. I mean, you know, if we were going to get uh, maybe the technology, but all this will prove is, is is that they can make it from coal, and but we don't. That's not the way to really go with hydrogen. It doesn't sound like. Uh, th there's no, there's no technological development in relation to coal hydrogen. That process has been understood for many decades and practiced for quite a long time. In fact, they've been they made they've made hydrogen in the power plants in the Latrobe Valley from coal for a long time. So the government's really overstating the benefit to Victoria? Well, the argument is that it's going to demonstrate a hydrogen supply chain yeah. process. Yeah. Yeah. Other, but other states are proposing to demonstrate that using green hydrogen. Yeah. One of the other interesting aspects of green hydrogen is that in the electrolysis process, you produce, as I said, hydrogen and oxygen mm. and pure oxygen. And pure oxygen is actually incredibly useful and not that easy to come by. So, for instance, it's very useful for water purification. And I've heard the people involved in water authorities in Victoria saying that they look forward to a hydrogen industry so they can get their hands on uh, pure oxygen, which would be used in um, water purification and is much more efficient and effective than current methods which just use air, which doesn't have actually all that much oxygen in it. <laughs> to treat effluent, you mean to treat effluent? As to treat effluent, yeah, and to for water purification. Uh, it will save them, it will make that process much more efficient and reduce CO2 emissions that come from the current treatment process 
and they even think it will be usable to in the restoration of degraded waterways because one of the major problems in rural waterways in Australia is lack of oxygen yeah. in, in the waterways. So you get all sorts of algal blooms and so on. And to uh, get a hold, a lot, hold of a lot of pure oxygen, which could be pumped into waterways as part of restoration process, would wow, be quite, quite effective in, uh, yeah, waterway restoration. So lots of spin-offs. We've got about only about three or four minutes left on the show, unfortunately. It's been really interesting hearing, Colin, your information about hydrogen and the electricity grid, and really good to have you here, Julia, to ask some very intelligent questions of Colin, which I would have no ability to ask. <laughs> so it's really wonderful to hear you guys talking. Um, we do have to finish up soon, and I have a couple of questions for Colin, and I bet Kevin does as well. Well, you go ahead, mate. Go on. Well, I really wanted to sort of ask Colin about um, your role as a Just Transitions organiser at Trades Hall and what's happening in terms of how unions are supporting workers within the, the move to make a transition out of dirty fuel and into clean energy. Oh, look, it's a, it's a big job. Um, there's still a lot of work to, to do to make sure. I think the unions could do a lot more to be leaders around climate change and they're starting to move. We've produced a... Uh, just Transition and Economic Recovery Strategy at Trades Hall, which all the unions have endorsed. You can find that on the Trades Hall website. We've, we're calling, like so many other organisations, for the recovery from COVID-19 to be a green one. And lots of jobs in not only renewable energy, but all sorts of other. So our report really talks about the opportunity. If we took climate change seriously and acted on it, the scope for jobs across the economy, not just in renewable energy, but all sorts of other jobs. And so that's what we're trying to create a, a positive uh, narrative about taking action and actually being able to create a better world. We don't have to see climate change only in a negative sense. Obviously, climate change is a massive threat to human civilization. But if we act to, to stop it, we'll create a better world in the process. So that's the sort of narrative we want. Still a lot of work to do, though. Uh, we have to get economic diversification in fossil fuel-dependent regions because there won't be enough jobs just in renewables in those regions. Um, and we have to get an example of a proper just transition taking place in Australia because the experience of workers in Australia and unions is that uh, industry restructuring is usually handled very badly in Australia. The capitalist gets lots of subsidies to uh, make people redundant and the workers... Uh, left high and dry and we've got to change that in this country and demonstrate that an actual just transition for workers is possible and they don't they and their communities don't have to be worse off from the transition that's the big challenge yep Kevin any final questions or thoughts um, not really, because I think Colin just touched on a couple of things I was going to mm. talk about. But Colin, uh, we, we haven't got any time, unfortunately, but another area I know you're really interested in. Yet again, last week, there was a, a fire in a textile factory, this time in India, with 12 workers killed. And I know for a long time you've been concerned about um, the, the fate of workers in places like Bangladesh, etc. Any advances there or is it still pretty much the same? Oh, look, I think the the accord on factory safety in Bangladesh that came out of the Rana Plaza disaster did have some effect on improving factory safety, especially from fire and so on in Bangladesh. But the COVID crisis has also had an impact on garment workers in places like Bangladesh because... The downturn in Western economies has meant a big downturn in orders for, the, for in those countries. And a lot of the workers have been, um, you know, the, the Western companies just stopped paying for orders or, just, or stopped ordering or wouldn't pay for orders they had ordered. So a lot of workers were left high and dry without money. Um, so there has been a bit of industrial unrest in places like Bangladesh. So the, the overall position of garment workers, I think, in the developing world hasn't uh, improved massively. There have been some wins in terms of increasing wages, but often they are countered by increases in prices and rents and all those sorts of things. But the unions continue to organise 
pretty well in places like Bangladesh and Cambodia, despite incredible repression from their governments and uh, the capitalists. Mm. Yeah, okay. Thanks for that. We'll have to wind it up there, everybody. You've been listening to City Limits on 3CR and um, we've had our guests Colin Long from Trades Hall and Julia from Save Western Port Bay. And I'm just thinking aloud here, now that the 25-kilometre limit from Melbourne residences is no longer in place, might be a really good time to go out to Western Port Bay and see it for yourself if you're listening. Give your support to that community. Yeah, it's such a beautiful area. So, uh, yeah, let's hope it gets, gets preserved. All right, yeah, thanks to both our guests, and, uh, and that's it. Next week, um, housing. We're looking at housing next week, so we'll have the housing with the ACE Action Group and into public housing on next week's City Limits. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.